Topic of our Dhamma talk this evening is going to be the absence of uh, the self in the Pali scriptural language known as Anatta. And um, I will try to keep this talk to um, well the main points and uh, I will try not to uh, make it too long. Now, in for a better understanding of anatta, let us first of all look at our personal experiences of self or of I or mine. So when we think of our own, when we think of the body, then usually we relate to it as this body and mind. Or do we relate to it as my body? And, so, and then when hearing some you know, sound, you know, then usually what do you say, Chris? I hear it. I hear it. There you go. And uh, when seeing some you know, you know, visible object, then you say what? I see it. And Satna, then if you have a particular political view, then Jim, what do you say? <laughs> Which is very precious to you. It's my view. It's my view. There you go. And Satna, then when it suddenly comes to our profession, let's say we happen to be a bus driver with 20 years of accident free driving experience, and we're really proud of our profession as a bus driver, then we will feel. How will we feel if someone comes and says, you are the l most lousy bus driver in the entire you know, you know, district? Hmm? You will feel, as if you were to be the bus driver, then would you feel pleased about this? Jennifer? No. no, no pardon me? No. Not at all. And so, and so if uh, you're you know, being a bus driver with 20 years of experience is important to you and someone comes and says you're a lousy bus, bus driver, then you will not be delighted about this kind of a statement. And why is this? Because you're identified with that. Because you're identified with uh, your profession uh, being a bus driver. And the same thing you know, then you know, goes you know, for our you know, being a member of a certain country and you know, possessing a certain nationality. So if we happen to have been born into this particular country, then we're you know, most likely proud you know, to you know, be an American. But it's maybe <laughs> it will probably depend on you know, which section of society you belong to. And uh, but for the most you know, part, I assume, uh, unknowingly, uh, then certain people will be proud. Now, again, if someone you know, comes and you know, then you know, challenges our nationality and starts saying you know, bad things about it, um, you know, then we might not like it you know, too much. On the other hand, if someone else comes and says, "Oh, you know, the Americans are really the greatest on the you know, on the globe, and certainly their achievements can not be, you know, you know no no other country can." You know, parallel 
know, these achievements in the terms in terms of sciences and uh, um, uh, aeronautics and whatnot, yeah, then obviously we feel greatly yeah, pleased, and uh, our you know, sense of self yeah, then gets a boost. Now. Um, Issues certain concerning you know, the self also concern our possessions. So if we happen to be, let's say, the owner of a larger you know, lot of land or plot of footnote land, and certainly we're going to subdivide it, we're going to build a number of houses, and then someone comes and just you know, walks around, then the this may be seen as an, uh, well, infringement, uh, uh, this may be seen as trespassing. The reason for this certain being there's a great sense of possession there, there's a great sense of identification with the plot of land. Now, this certain issue of the self has been discussed back and forth, what do you think, only for the last 10 years? <laughs> Obviously not. For many decades, this issue has come up, and certain different certain people have had different opinions about it. And in particular, the discussions have been about whether a self actually exists or not exists. And if the self exists, as most people assume, then what is that self? And what certain you know, with what uh, do we you know, have to identify you know, the self? What uh, you know, you know, is uh, you know, that part within us, uh, or what is the center with which uh, you know, we can identify you know, the self? Now, usually, when we maybe to add you know, one you know, one or two more points you know, in terms of personal experience, if we happen to be a mother of two or three you know, children, then this certain you know, will very much shut to make up our identity. And so, then we may be proud of being a mother of two or three children. And so, if then, owing to some misfortune, let's say, owing to a contagious disease, or the mother's two or three children pass away, then this will be a great blow to the mother, because with that, her being a mother is certainly being v in a very direct manner uh, affected, and that all of a sudden she is not certainly a mother anymore. Now, there are you know, different. Some have called certainly the self a principle of thought and certain action which thinks, which wills and feels, which knows and sees, and also that which appropriates and owns. It is certainly usually perceived as a durable entity, and some of the permanent unchanging factor within you know, the concrete certain personality you know, then you know, sometimes has been identified with the intellect or with perception or other you know, things. And 
And this Satna self, Satna then uh, oftentimes is certainly conceived or is a thought of to be immaterial and eternal. Now, when we look at certainly the Upanishads, namely uh, Hindu uh, text, uh, then uh, we find uh, that uh, uh, the Upanishads contain many descriptions of uh, the so-called Atman, namely the self. And one of uh, the descriptions, uh, one of the qualities that is being attributed to uh, the Atman is that it is free from death. And furthermore, free from sorrow, we shoka in the Sanskrit language, and that it does have real thoughts, satya samkalpa in Sanskrit. After death, the soul has form because it appears in its own form. That is what the texts satna say. Now, it is believed to be permanent, unchanging, and certainly even blissful, and certainly autonomous, and unaffected by the vicissitudes of certainly change. Now, in... Well, um, the Indian belief system, a distinction is being made between the so-called Paramaatta, the supreme self, and the personal or individual self, the so-called Jiva-atta. And so that Paramaatta is believed to know everything, uh, to be omniscient, Sabanyu, and Satna to be the one and only one, Eko Ewa, and Satna then also to be devoid of pain, and Satna pleasure, Sukadukha Rahito, and this supreme self is certainly thought to create and control the activities of the individual self. And Satna then, as mentioned, it is thought to be permanent. Now, when it comes to the qualities of Satna Jiva then it certainly is said that it is controlled by the Paraatma, and Satsa takes the command of the Paraatma. It too is permanent and certainly eternal, and that and the size of it then depends on the size of the being it lives in. So that Jiva Atta or Atman is certainly believed to be very big in size in the case of an elephant, and in the case of an ant, it is supposed to be very small. And now, at the time of the Buddha, already various views were held about the self. And some thinkers thought that the self is infinite, others that it is finite. Some uh, identified uh, it with, as mentioned, intelligence, some uh, with bliss. And some uh, thought uh, that Satna, the self, is the soul which would exist eternally. Whereas an outspoken minority, such as Ajita Kesa Kambali, thought that Satna the Self was material and persisted at death. So let us take a closer look at what this Kesa, this Ajita Kesa Kambali, believed in. 
Mm. And so in the Diga Nikaya, you know, we find uh, the, or there's the Samanyapana you know, Sutta, namely the discourse on you know, the fruit of recluseship, and so in you know, that certain discourse, you know, we find uh, a statement, uh, uh, well, Ajita Kesakambali's certain view you know, described. And so the context is that King Ajatasattu goes and visits various teachers of the time and then he asks them about their or the immediate fruits of recluseship. And so they give different answers. Eventually, King Ajatasattu then visits the Blessed One, the Buddha, and puts the same question to him, namely asking, um, can you point to such a reward visible here now as a fruit of the homeless life? And so, you know, and then you know, the, the blessed one asks in return, "Well, is it that you have asked this question you know, to other teachers?" And he you know, uh, does admit this. And so then the blessed one goes on to ask him, "Well, would you mind telling me what those other teachers have said?" And then you know, the king explains one by one you know, what they said, and certainly his certain reaction, his. Uh, um, opinion about them, and he was not uh, necessarily uh, convinced of all of uh, their uh, opinions. Now, in Diganikaya section 55, we find uh, the following, namely, Ajita Kesakambali said, and this is certainly uh, the, uh, the king, your Majesty, there is nothing given, bestowed, offered in sacrifice. There is no fruit or result of good or bad deeds. There is not this world or the next. There is no mother or father. There are no spontaneously arisen beings. There are in the world no ascetics or Brahmins who have attained, who have perfectly practiced, who proclaim this world and the next, having realize them by their own super-knowledge. This human being is composed of the four great elements, and when one dies, the earth part reverts to earth, the water part to water, the fire part to fire, the air part to air, and the faculties pass away into space. They accompany the dead man with four bearers and the buyer as fifth. Their footsteps are heard as far as the cremation ground. There the bones whiten, the sacrifice ends in ashes. It is the idea of a fool to give this gift. The talk of those who preach a doctrine of survival is vain and false. Fools and wise at the breaking up of the body are destroyed and perish. They do not exist after death. So how would you describe this teacher's teachings? Materialist. As materialist, yes. And what else is he saying? Is there an afterlife? Is there a life after death? There's not. And so, you know, to give a gift to someone, is there any benefit to this? No benefit. Hmm? It's, it's a nihilistic view and certainly even an annihilation view. And so, and then you know, the you know, the king uh, Ajatasattu you know, then you know, goes on to speak to you know, the, or, or you know, remarks to you know, the Buddha, you know, saying, "Thus, Lord Ajita Kesakambali, on being asked about the fruits of the homeless life, explained the doctrine of annihilation to me. I got up and left. So <laughs> he was not too pleased. Now." There is another mm, 
there is another materialist, you know, materialistic teacher at you know, the time of you know, the Buddha, who you know, was known as Pakuda Kachayana. And he's also mentioned in that same Samanyapana Sutta of the Diga Nikaya. And so he proposed human beings to be made up of seven immutable principles. And please think for yourselves whether you would agree to this or not. And those immutable principles which lead a person to the conclusion that even cutting of someone's head with a sword should not be considered killing, but should be reckoned only as inserting the blade of a sword in the space intervening between these seven principles. Would you love to be a follower of this teacher? <laughs> not really. So this teacher is certainly saying that certainly taking life or you know, taking what is not given, etc. No, there's no problem there no, whatsoever. And he was certainly, or he has been characterized as being a holder of an atomic theory. Now. We have still other views around, namely the Christian view. Is there any specialist among you? So what about the self or the soul? What is the soul? The soul is perceived to be permanent or impermanent? Permanent. And upon the breaking up of the body it goes either to heaven or into hell and then that soul is seen as well the immaterial essence of of an individual's life And so from a Christian point of view, that self or the soul is seen as something, well, some core that continues to exist even if our physical body breaks up. Now, Views such as certainly killing, uh, there is no offense to killing, obviously does not apply to Christianity. So there's a difference there. Now, in Christianity, would you say that the soul could be identified with intelligence? Would that be correct to say? Not really. Jim? Yes. You think so? So it's it's the same as intelligence. The soul has intelligence. Is that what you're asking? Whether well, the identification the the soul is tantamount to intelligence is that the seat of your soul? I guess the Christian feels that way, don't they? Any other views? Well, um, uh, so don't ask me. (laughs) (laughs) Even though I've grown up (laughs) into Christianity. And souls have some mutability in Christianity. You can go to hell, but if you work hard, you can get to purgatory. And if you work hard, you can get to heaven. Uh, so there, there, change is possible Yes. the Christian framework uh, mm. for the soul. Okay, now, 
in terms uh, of uh, um, well, uh, philosopher, European philosopher, um, with regards uh, to uh, the self, he uh, came up uh, with um, the following well-known uh, statement, namely "cogito ergo sum," which means what. I think, therefore, I am. There you go. And so, cogito is to think, I think, ergo, therefore, sum, I am. So, um, René Descartes, who was that philosopher, strongly believed that because there is, or he thought, that the thinking is the seat of the self. And so as long as we're thinking, a self exists. Now, we could take that particular view and then transpose it, then say, well, I have feelings, I feel, therefore I am, or um, I have certain mental factors that are active, and therefore I am, or we could say, because consciousness is there, because I am conscious of this on, so therefore I am. Now, Despite of these many different notions of notions and understandings of the self, the Buddha had or came to quite some different conclusion, and the Buddha deeply penetrated what is actually going on in the body and the mind, and he checked very carefully whether those assumed identifications um, were such as certain thinking and certain self and self and certain intelligence and self and perception, etc., whether those really make sense or not. And he found uh, in the end uh, that certain self does not exist, and there's no reason whatsoever uh, to identify with any of uh, those certain five aggregates. And the Buddha's teachings, to some extent, have similarities with Hindu teachings or Brahman teachings. The distinguishing factor, however, is the Buddha's teachings of anatta, of the absence of a self. So, the teachings of anatta make the Buddha's teachings unique and different from others, other uh, religious uh, uh, teachings. Now, the Buddha's way of refuting the idea of a self are based in, or usually come in four different ways. The first one is, and you will very much be familiar with this and be able to relate to this, by carefully observing what is actually going on in this body and mind, by observing the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, pains and aches, and various movements of the body, and various certain mental activities, eventually one comes to the conclusion there are just these five aggregates, or in a in a more, um, in a you know, somewhat more simplified manner, they are just materiality and mentality, nama and sattva rupa, or you know, we can say they're just those elements or the sense spheres, 
and none of footnote those of bodily formations or mental formations which we can further break down can be taken as a self now from a meditator's certain perspective while you are observing the rising and falling movement of foot near the abdomen, then at least at times the impression will be there that suddenly there is no self. But at other times the sense of self may be back. And um, when we take the case of a pain, it's quite certainly obvious. As long as a pain is relatively mild, meditators will oftentimes say that suddenly when observing this pain and relating to it, they just saw it as a process, just a pain, and not my pain. But if that pain gets suddenly somewhat more intense, then the sense of self comes back in and one starts relating to the pain again as my pain. Now, the a second way of refuting the notion of the existence of a self is by way of cause and effect. And from your own meditation practice, you'll be able to relate certainly to this. So, you will have fitness seen for yourselves many times that um, there are basically just cause and effect certain connections or many cause and effect certain connections you know, taking place. So you see some delicious food and certainly with this you know, the desire to take more of it arises. Or you tr you're sitting in meditation, you're trying very hard you know, to you know, develop pertinent concentration and certainly then you know, maybe someone comes into you know, the meditation hall and is making a lot of noise and you know, with this irritation arises in the mind. So what we have here is a connection between hearing you know, what is perceived as noise and you know, then you know, the arising of irritation. So basically, uh, or there is certainly the case of you know, seeing some, or just the seeing process. So there's a visible object, and then you know, there are the eyes. When you know, the visible object and certain, you know, the you know, eyes come in contact, seeing consciousness takes place. And when those three come together, namely the visible object, plus certainly the eyes or eye sensitivity, and certainly seeing consciousness, then you know, one speaks of certain contact. And fasa in the Pali scriptural language. And so, based on the contact, a feeling will arise, Vedana, and based on this, then some perception will take place. So, all of this, the seeing process happens quite naturally without any involvement of a self. And so, um, if earlier on or under normal circumstances we say, I see, then this is on a very relative level, on a conventional level. But ultimately speaking, this is not really what is happening. So there's a huge difference between what appears to be the case and what is actually happening on an ultimate level. So, if certain formations are connected by cause and effect, is there still any room for a self? There's not. So there is just no need for a self. So that was the Buddha's second way of refuting or defeating the notion of a self. Now, in earlier talks, mention was made of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness. And the Buddha asking visitors whether 
when an object is uh, um, whether if new formations are permanent or impermanent and the answer to this is obvious impermanent the next question was when objects are impermanent then are they conducive to happiness or to suffering the answer to this is suffering if no objects are impermanent and unsatisfactory then how can they be how can there be a self and um the earlier to you know, preclude you know, the existence uh, of uh, a self. So when formations are impermanent and also unsatisfactory, then they cannot be taken you know, to be uh, a self or a soul. Or you know, those certain should not be regarded as those formations should not be regarded as this is mine, this I am. Now, the Buddha's fourth way of refuting the notion of a self uh, is as follows, namely, assuming if really a self were to exist then uh, the self should also be autonomous, should have some power, and then we should be able to say, okay, I do not want to fall sick. And we should also have the power to say, old age is terrible, I don't want to grow old, so no old age for me. And Amy, will this work? It will not work. And so, then we should also be in a position to say, okay, uh, death is terrible, I don't want to die. And so, uh, yet, so, um, the self does not have the power. So, even though we do not want to fall sick, we will sooner or later fall sick. Even though we may not want to age, we will be aging. And even though we may not want to pass away, yet we will die one day. So then it becomes certainly pretty obvious that certainly the self is just a fiction. Now, the notion of uh, I am is, in the words of uh, the Buddha, uh, just an imagining, manita in the Pali scriptural language. And as a result of this, one uh, then thinks, I am this, or I shall be, I shall not be, I shall possess material form, I shall be formless, and so on and so forth. Now, there are several so-called latent or dormant tendencies that contribute to this form of imagining as I am. In the case of the unenlightened Satna being, the mental factors that contribute to such a mistaken view are, first of all, ignorance, not knowing the truth, in particular not knowing the Four Noble Truths, then craving tanha in the form of attachment, desire, enjoyment, possessiveness, and then pride and conceit, mana, and this means the application of the I concept as the dominant standard of Futna judgment. And uh, furthermore, view, namely adhering to a distorted opinion as certain truth.
Now, these uh, um, mental factors, if one is not mindful, will you know, become activated and then will contribute you know, to the arising of you know, the notion of I, or, or you know, the arising of the notions of I am. And as Satna mentioned earlier on, when we take a very careful look at you know, the seeing process, and you know, then we find you know, that Satna, you know, well, just a visible object is there, and Satna, you know, then you know, the eyes are there, seeing consciousness are, you know, are there. And so things are happening in a very functional you know, manner. Now, when we perceive an object through one of the six sense doors, then um, a certain feeling will be accompanied or will go along with this. And then, in the absence of mindfulness, uh, craving comes in based on a perverted certain perception. And again, in the absence of uh, mindfulness, uh, conceit may also uh, come in and we start to relate uh, to uh, the object in terms of I or mine um, or he or she, his or hers. And if the object happens to be another human being, then it might go even a step further, and we might then think of the other person as being superior to ourselves, or equal to ourselves, or inferior to ourselves. And suddenly then, you know, wrong you know, view that may also you know, come you know, in, and suddenly you know, based on wrong you know, perception and certain you know, wrongful you know, conclusions, we then you know, imagine you know, for you know, that certain you know, object certain you know, to be uh, real, and certain you know, we then crave for it and uh, uh, relate to it uh, or develop you know, pride in it. Uh, Concede with regard to it. When When it comes you know, to you know, certain, um, let's say, uh, uh, property of uh, 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 that belongs, uh, let's say, to you know, the community, and that then uh, we might uh, develop uh, craving for uh, this, even though uh, it's not uh, mine. And so a very you know, simple example that comes to mind. Uh, is that of uh, the meditation cushions here in the hall. And uh, uh, so after a few days of using one particular cushion, which is placed in one particular uh, location, we start, and let's say if the cushion is rather you know, soft and certainly comfortable, we start liking it. And on top of this, you know, then the notion of what comes in, of my cushion. And so if someone else dares to sit on it, <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah, then all sorts of conflicts certainly might certainly arise. And maybe this particular example you know, shows you quite nicely how ridiculous it actually is what the mind is doing. These cushions belong to the mountain hermitage and certainly after the retreat certainly they will be taken back, right? And, and they're pretty much all you know, the same in you know, design and comfort. <laughs> Now, because 
because of you know, these you know, different factors of ignorance, of craving, of you know, pride and conceit and certain you know, wrong view, the concept of I am you know, then gets stabilized and certainly you know, will be you know, firmly established in you know, the mind. Now, just certain briefly you know, to you know, uh, mention, as certain you know, human you know, beings, even if we don't hold on to any Christian belief or you know, any you know, other you know, religious belief, we may still you know, identify strongly you know, with parts of you know, our you know, being. So. If, for instance, you know, we happen to be young and we happen to have an athletic body, then there is a great attachment to you know, the body and we will relate to it as my body. And we will not relate to it as just body. And then if we happen to be a person who, you know, for whom feelings are you know, very important, a person who um, you know, uh, frequently, ex- yeah, frequently experience or likes to experience certain pleasant certain feelings, you know, then such a person will identify with feelings and will say, my feelings. Or... And if someone attacks a feeling, then it is seen as an attack on the person itself. Now, in the same way, as human beings, we tend to identify with our perceptions, we tend to identify with our mental formations, and we even identify with consciousness. And certainly, so this certainly then uh, is certainly rather mm, well lacks uh, a proper mm, or, or lacks uh, you know, a, a proper understanding of certain reality. And one can say that because of you know, this notion of an I or you know, self and certainly you know, related to this the notion of mine, so many quarrels in you know, the world you know, take you know, place. So many quarrels, conflicts and problems and certain you know, divisions take place both individually as well as collectively. Now, if we do not have any particular attachment to some piece of property that another person is liking and wants to appropriate, then there is no problem. But if we are greatly attached to it, and certainly it is important to our sense of self, then the quarreling will come in. Now, in this connection, Daniel Goleman, who is a psychologist by profession and also a prolific writer, he's very well known as a writer in one of his books, and I assume it's the book Social, what was it? Social Intelligence, where he speaks of, where he speaks of the notion of a self that's or, or and, and the question when does it come up for human beings and he says that based on modern scientific research the sense of self is not present in newborn babies and it is not present until the age of about two, one and a half years to two years and so up to that particular age, the babies are usually seen as extremely lovable by their parents. <laughs> and the reason is because they don't have a sense of fitness self. 
And there's no sense of owning something. However, as soon as that sense of self starts to arise, and you know, now there are also other siblings around who are maybe older, then the quarreling starts. What's that? Called the terrible twos. Oh, the terrible. Oh, there's even an expression for that. Oh, the terrible twos. And so, so this might serve as another reason to show that this notion of a self is just a notion. It's just a concept that does not have any ultimate reality to it. However, as human beings, let's say if we're 30, 40, 50 years old and we do not meditate, we think the self is absolutely real. And don't touch my sense of self. If you touch my sense of self, if you touch my views, my political views or whatever, or my possessions, then there will be trouble. And so, basically, because of this wrong, because of not properly understanding the nature of the self and realizing that there is no self in the first place, all these many conflicts uh, arise. So, if as, or as meditators, the situation changes dramatically because gradually you know, we gain understanding into the nature of the self. Obviously, we, it's not that we see all the time that the self doesn't exist, but at least there will be you know, certain experiences here and there you know, when we notice, okay, you know, the rising and falling movement of the abdomen is happening all by itself, as a number of meditators have reported today and yesterday. And so there's no sense of a self there, it's just happening. When doing the walking meditation, a similar experience may arise. So one does the walking meditation, the lifting is taking place, the forward movement is taking place, the lowering placing of the foot takes place, and there's no sense of me doing it. And you know, that sense of self is just not in the picture. And it's just happening all by itself. I'm not saying for the entire walking session, but maybe for a minute or two. And the walking is just happening quite automatically. So that might be an experience, a very direct experience of anatta, absence of a self. There's, your doing is not needed. You're out of the picture. And with that, you will then realize that things are happening quite naturally and quite happily without your uh, trying to control. And the earlier experience, certainly for meditators usually, is that dramatically they're trying to be in control. Trying to be in control of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. Uh, they want to make it, let's say, a little bit faster or a little bit clearer so that they can observe it better. Or if it is too fast, then they want to slow it down. And the usual experience is it doesn't happen according to one's will and wish. And the result of this is a headache and, <laughs> and a certain dissatisfaction and certain suffering. So you know, things don't happen according to our views or our, our will. But then, if, when eventually we manage to step back, a step out of the picture, then things happen quite naturally and there's no, at that point, there's no suffering. Now, also from a practical point of view, before the Dhamma talk, Alan asked me, well, what's going to be the topic? And I said, Anatta. And then he asked, well, will there be any practical application? And so I will try to focus on the practical application. Now, 
see, if you footna looked through the true nature of footna the self, and you footna seen that sutna ultimately there is no sense of self, then when at times sutna the self is not that prevalent, then there's no problem. However, if a meditator keeps in the meditation practice, keeps observing one object after another, dissolving, dissolving, dissolving. So you're rising and falling, movement of the abdomen, dissolve. And suddenly then there's a pain there, you observe it carefully, it dissolves. And then let's say there's a mental state of, uh, of interest, and suddenly this too also dissolves. And then in the end, you, know, you observe Fatna thinking, your thoughts also dissolve. And then in the end, there's not so much left. And at that point, you know, things get a little bit critical. And at that point in the practice, Jackie, which, what's, uh, what might come up? What might come up? Yes. A sense of? Yeah. A sense of insecurity and fear. And, but it's the insecurity that's, uh, you know, that tends to arise. So there's a clear sense of insecurity. Where is this heading to? <laughs> the nothing is there. Everything, you know, or everything dissolves, 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 dissolves. And you know, with that, also the notion of a self-footnote dissolves, and then there's not much shutnet left. And so a sense of security, or, or you know, there's a sense of insecurity that suddenly then um, arises, and the usual stability that we are used to also this suddenly gets questioned. And what the mind does in a situation like this, it frantically looks for something to hold on to. And uh, it could be the most miserable thought, uh, <laughs> at least it, it's something, some object that the mind can hold on to. And you know, that miserable thought will give the mind you know, and give you know, the person a sense of security and stability. So. Sooner or later in the meditation practice, this might come up. If it comes up, just be ready for it. And, <laughs> and don't overact. Don't overact. And just uh, you know, take the sense of insecurity and lack of stability as objects of observation, and I can guarantee you life will go on. <laughs> now, The absence of a self, you know, ultimately speaking, actually comes sudden in very handy. If someone comes up to you, and uh, like if someone comes, if you happen to be that bus driver, then certain I mentioned at the outset of Fatna the talk. So with 20 years of uh, accident, certain free uh, experience, driving experience. So someone comes up to you, you're the bus driver, and says, certain you're the most lousy bus driver here in the county. Then, and you happen to be a meditator, and you know about the, you know, you've seen through the notion of self. Then what happens? just an unpleasant sound. There you go. It's just an unpleasant sound and you just label it as hearing, hearing, and so as it comes, it goes, it just passes through. And so if there's ultimately speaking no self, so you know, who is there to be hurt? Might by, not even be by me? It might not even be unpleasant. It might not even be unpleasant. So the next time you are in a quarrel or a debate with another person, and the other person is suddenly you know, throwing all sorts of you know, accusations at you. Never mind. Just label it as hearing, hearing. <laughs> you know, don't. So, you know that ultimately speaking, there's no self. And why defend one's own self? And this is another point that we haven't really looked at yet. See, um, with a sense of self comes un totally unnecessarily 
a sense of wanting to protect or defend that notion of self, which again is absolutely ridiculous. And so, and so if you see through you know, the you know, nature of the self, you know, then and someone attacks you, why defend the self? If someone takes pleasure in attacking your notion of self, so what? Okay, let him do. I know. And you know, in the end, you know, the peace is important. And if among two people, one people, one person is certain continuously attacking, and one person is wise, okay, then let the wise, wise person you know, give in and just let it certain, let it certain, you know, be, and not certain, uh, react. So Dhamma practice very much contributes to the arising of wisdom and with this to and contributes to the arising of peace in the community. Now, from a meditation point of view, when we meditate, then ultimately we will understand the following stanza, which is certainly recorded in the Visuddhi Magga, namely, Mere suffering exists, no sufferer is found. The deeds are, but no doer of the deeds is there. Nibbana is, but not the man or woman that enters it. The path is, but no traveler on it is seen. And this is it for tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.